the History Channel original podcast. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you've heard of ChatGPT. It can be a little scary. Some teachers are afraid it's going to do all of their students' homework. Some podcast producers are afraid it's going to write all of their scripts. But the fear of artificial intelligence, it's nothing new. And 25 years ago, the question wasn't whether a computer could write a novel, but whether it could beat the best human player at one of the world's oldest games. Sports history this week, May 11th, 1997. I'm Kalen Jones. On the 35th floor of a Manhattan skyscraper, two men sit across from each other. Around them, a crowd of cameramen. Between them, a chessboard. This is no ordinary game. Millions of people are watching the six-game match live. The Boston Globe calls it a battle of cosmic consequences. On one side of the board is 34-year-old chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov. By 1997, Kasparov's been the reigning world champion for over a decade. Going into the match, most experts expect him to win, even though his rival is 6'5 and nearly 3,000 pounds. It's not a boxing match, but still, his opponent is imposing. The IBM supercomputer, Deep Blue, is housed offstage in two black monolithic server towers. Its human proxy sits across from Kasparov, receiving its chess moves from a monitor off to the side. The two humans sit silently as they wait to see what the machine will do next. Today, we look back on a legendary battle between arguably the greatest chess player that ever lived and a thinking machine. How does a computer master a very human game? And when they face off, who will come out on top? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before Gary Kasparov became the defender of humanity, he was a little kid living in Baku, the Soviet capital of Azerbaijan. At just five years old, his mom discovers him reading her newspaper out loud, and she asks if he can tell her what he's just read. Without understanding the context of what he's saying, he repeats the article about a geopolitical conflict in Egypt. His impeccable memory makes him a natural at chess. By the time he's six, he can beat his father. By the time he's 10, he's playing in adult competitions. He has to stand at the chessboard because if he sits, he can't reach all the pieces. Well, in the 1970s, he was the star on the rise, and it was clear he would someday be world chess champion. Everyone felt that. 
That's Bruce Pandolfini, or Pando, as he's known by many students. He's been teaching chess for over half a century. And when Kasparov makes his first bid for the world championship title in 1984, Pandolfini is in Moscow, covering the games for Chess Life magazine. That was an extraordinary match. Kasparov, an expressive 21-year-old kid, is going up against Anatoly Karpov, a 33-year-old chess veteran and darling of the Kremlin. Kasparov, on the other hand, is a self-described half-Armenian, half-Jewish menace to this good Russian boy. Kasparov is an ingenious attacker, very creative. He always plays for the initiative. Whereas Karpov kind of sucks the life out of positions. He's very defensive. He tries to lure you into making mistakes and overstepping, and then he he crushes you with a counterattack. The world champion chess match rules are simple. Victory goes to whoever wins six games first. Draws don't count. And when the tournament begins in September of 1984, it seems like it'll be a pretty short event. Kasparov fell behind fairly early in the match. In just a matter of weeks, he's down four to nothing. He looks so tired that the Philadelphia Inquirer compares him to a student during finals. But Kasparov digs his heels in. Instead of trying to win, he goes on defense and just tries not to lose. And it works. For the next 17 games, the two men draw over and over again. This isn't a fun record to see broken. The people who paid to watch the games are so bored, they slow clap and jeer. Now a string of 14 more draws took place. (laughs) So this is ongoing battle, which was a strain on everyone just watching it. The crowds begin to thin as the tie games pile up. Ticket sales plunge. The match organizers haven't budgeted for four months of chess. Karpov is struggling, while Kasparov flourishes. He wins games 32, 47, and 48. So in that match, there was a point where the tide began to turn in favor of Kasparov. How did he do it? Well, you simply can't give in. You have to manifest a desire to fight. Kasparov does that over the board. It's really difficult to face off against him because you feel this juggernaut, this force coming at you, so much energy that it's really hard for a human being to cope with that. After five months, Kasparov might just nab the world champion title after all. And then the president of the World Chess Federation calls the match saying that it's just impossible on the organizers and all that to go on. The players are exhausted. Of course, both players wanted to continue playing. When the match is abandoned, Kasparov is furious. He feels robbed. But six months later, he returns to Moscow for a rematch. And under the sky-high ceilings of the Tchaikovsky Music Hall, Gary Kasparov finally vanquishes Anatoly Karpov, 13 to 11, and becomes the youngest chess world champion of all time. But as a victory laurel is being hung around his neck, an even greater rival than Karpov is about to be created. In 1985, Feng Sheng Shu is a grad student at Carnegie Mellon University, where many of his peers are trying to solve the holy grail of computer science, the computer chess problem. The basic concept 
If a computer can beat the best human chess player, maybe one day it can write music or translate languages or any number of things that typically only humans can do. Here's Xu himself. If you can solve chess, then you might get into the point of what human intelligence. But this is no cakewalk. There are billions and billions of moves you can make in a single chess game. About as many as there are atoms in the universe. Getting a machine to pick which part of the decision tree to follow is a monumental challenge, and not everyone wants to take all that on. I wasn't really thinking about doing it. <laughs> Xu is happy working on his thesis, making printers work better and faster. But one day, a senior faculty member named Dr. Hans Berliner comes to Xu and asks for his help with his chess machine, High Tech. He's having trouble with the computer chips, and he knows that's Shu's area of expertise. Shu politely agrees to take a look. They're using a design that has sixty-four chips, each one for one square of the chess chip. That's <laughs>、wow. a very expensive way of doing it. That's my design. I thought、eh, that's not the way to go. But when Shu proposes the idea of a single chess chip. Professor Berliner thinks he's just trying to get out of doing work. Hans was saying, "You are joking. You must be trying to hide behind the impossible task." It didn't go very well between him and me. This conversation goes so poorly that Shu's academic advisor sits him down and says, "You can't just do that. Okay, you have to present something saying you are not f***ing around. You you're thinking about doing this." So I give a presentation saying, "Okay, how you can do a single chip chess machines?" They didn't buy it. Nobody buy it. After this, Xu goes on a long vacation. He should be taking a break, but he can't. He knows that he can build this chip, even if no one believes him. It was hellish six months, but I did it. He designed a special purpose chip. That, when plugged into a computer, could accelerate the computations needed for a chess engine, as we call them. That's Murray Campbell. He's a chess expert, and at the time, was a student working on Professor Berliner's chess project, High Tech. When he hears about Shu's new computer chip, and unlike Berliner, he's a believer. So he starts to help Shu with the software and chess side of things. It was a fun side project. We had a strong belief that by pushing some of the computation into hardware, we could make a much stronger program. And there was evidence that as programs got faster, they got better. And they're right. Their computer program makes quick work of high tech and other leading chess computers. Then it starts playing humans. In January of 1988. It becomes the first computer to be a grandmaster in a regular tournament game, but not everyone likes the idea of a computer that can beat a human at a game of intellect. At an event in 1989, a reporter starts to grill Shu. You feel bad. What you may be doing is like taking away the human creative, you know, soul. I don't think it's taking away the human creative soul. We're trying to build something that's better than all human in a specific domain. Now, what what does that do? Unclear. The reporter isn't the only skeptic of this technology. Its ultimate target, Gary Kasparov, raises concerns too. If computer beats one day 
Mm, I don't know what will happen. <laughs> it will be very unpleasant, not only for the chess players, but uh, for the human race itself. But Kasparov is confident he can take even the best technology has to offer. He's the highest rated chess player in the world. People call him the beast of Baku. He's not about to be upstaged by a machine. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. In February of 1996, Feng Shengshu, Murray Campbell, and other talented computer scientists arrive at the Philadelphia Convention Center with a giant supercomputer named Deep Blue in tow. Here's Murray Campbell again. You could think of it as two big black refrigerator-sized cabinets sitting side by side. And inside those cabinets, there was a large number of computers in a rack. And on each of those computers were circuit boards that were plugged in that contained the chess hardware. For the last seven years, Shu and Campbell have been hard at work. They took their talents from Carnegie Mellon to IBM. You got to rise above all the competition. Easy. The solution is IBM. With IBM, Shu and Campbell have been able to turn their college pet project into a massive supercomputer capable of calculating a hundred million chess moves per second. And now they have the chance to prove they have solved the computer chess problem. Round one today of a six-game chess match between the ranking world champion Gary Kasparov and an opponent named Deep Blue. Game one is underway. Kasparov goes in with his usual aggressive approach, but the supercomputer blocks his attack and Kasparov can't recover. That first victory was an absolute thrill. We were scared going into the match because the system wasn't all that well tested. It had only been up and running for a few weeks. Oh, wow. And so we hadn't really done the kind of testing that we needed to do to ensure that we'd gotten the bugs out. And so 
When I was able to win that first game, we breathed a sigh of relief, so to speak. After that initial loss, Kasparov realizes he needs to tailor his style to his opponent. And going into game two, he takes a totally different approach. He used a style of play that in those days people called anti-computer chess. He played very safe, careful chess. This works against Deep Blue. Kasparov defeats the computer. He keeps the strategy going to eventually win the tournament, four games to two. But the loss turns out to be a win for IBM. The company's stock price surges. If there was ever any doubt that investing in a chess-playing computer was a good bet, there isn't any now. And while IBM organizes a rematch, Campbell and Chu make a game plan. In 96, we, we learned a lot from the way that Kasparov was able to beat us. Apart from the first game, which we won in that match, the rest of the match, he was much more careful, strategic, not wanting to get in a slugfest with Deep Blue because Deep Blue was very good at calculating through sequences of moves and finding the best sequence when it was very tactical. But when it was very strategic and everything required long-term thinking, it wasn't quite as good. The program needs work. To get better, it needs to learn from humans. The Deep Blue team decides to bring in chess experts like Joel Benjamin, a respected American grandmaster. He would play games against Deep Blue and point out to us issues, things that he thought it was doing wrong. While others work on the strategy, Xu gets to work building a computer chip that is twice as fast as the first, computing 200 million moves per second. And after 15 months, they're ready for a rematch. It's May of 1997. The second match, the publicity was just humongous. Advertisements for the rivalry are all over New York City. On bus stops, on magazine covers, Newsweek calls the match the brain's last stand. The initial press conference has to be moved to a bigger space because too many journalists show up. Millions prepare to watch the match live on an emerging platform, the internet, at www.chess.ibm.com. The web was so new that people needed tutorials on how to use it. Take a spin, now you're in with a techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. But most people don't have internet at home. In fact, only about a third of Americans own computers. And the computers they did own probably only offer email, Microsoft Word, Solitaire. And yet, here is IBM saying... We've got a computer so strong and so smart that it can be Gary Kasparov, the greatest of all time. Going into it and even during it, did you feel like the general audience or people who were watching, were they rooting for you guys or were they rooting for Kasparov? I would say on the whole, the, the crowd was, was much more for Kasparov. I can understand that, you know, they're, they're humans like he is. And, and yes. he's like defending, <laughs> defending the honor of the human race in, in some strange sense. The confidence Kasparov felt in that first match 15 months earlier has faded. He feels like IBM has been, quote, 
antagonistic, and secretive. When Kasparov asks to see the records of Deep Blue's gains from the last year, IBM refuses. They want to keep Deep Blue a black box. When Kasparov arrives at the skyscraper where the match is being held, he finds out that there is no space set aside for him and his team. Like if the Knicks showed up at MSG and there was no locker room. But even with the increased tension, Kasparov is not that easily shaken. Here's Bruce Pandolfini again. Kasparov won the first game handily. He took like a very tentative approach, right? Like why was that successful against the computer? Well, he's just feeling out, you know, is this computer not going to play differently from how it did in the past? So you don't want to be wildly aggressive or put yourself out there without having a greater sense of where's this computer at now. You got to feel it out, sense things out, and get an overall take on it. And that's, I think, what Kasparov was doing in the first game. The first game is an impressive win for Kasparov, but the match is just getting started. In game two, Deep Blue plays a common opening called the Rui Lopez. That's an opening named after a Spanish priest from the 1500s, late 1500s, who was considered the best player in the world at the time. He offered an interesting piece of advice that was to place the board so that the sun was in your opponent's eyes. And in a way, what happens later in the game does blind Kasparov. The computer played a move which was highly positional and strategic. Instead of looking deeply ahead in a very calculating way, it blocked a pawn. It simply tried to block up the position to slow things down and make it difficult to get counterplay. This strategic approach shows how far Deep Blue has come since the last competition. To Kasparov, it's shocking. How could a computer make a move that was so human-like? Kasparov felt that maybe there had been input during the game and he was being cheated in some way. That has an impact on you. If you think you're being cheated, whether or not you are, your play will get all messed up. And Kasparov completely loses his focus. I was sitting right across from him in that particular game. And you can see his face that's really turning red. And this moment in game two is when Kasparov makes what he will later call the worst blunder of his career. On his 45th move, he reaches out his hand to shake shoes. He's resigning, admitting defeat. But maybe he shouldn't have. He probably had a draw. He had counterplay. He had the possibility of a perpetual check. That's where you can attack the enemy king, but you can't quite trap it and checkmate it. But you can annoy it consistently throughout, and there's no way of stopping that. And he had a move that would have led to that possibility, and he didn't play it. Ordinarily, he would have seen that instantly and continued playing, but he resigned. And I think it had to do because it was an extension of his feeling that he had been possibly swindled or cheated in some way. Kasparov doesn't realize his blunder at first, but the next day, while walking down Fifth Avenue, his coach breaks the news. Kasparov is horrified. He stands on the sidewalk holding his head in his hands, wondering how he could have missed it. For the next three games, Kasparov fights through his paranoia, but he can't seem to gain an inch. No matter how hard he fights for a win, every game ends in a draw. Kasparov only becomes more distressed. He will later tell the New York Times, 
I'm a human being. When I see something that is well beyond my understanding, I'm afraid. Going into game six, the match is still tied. This is the decisive game. Kasparov is exhausted. He doesn't think he'll have the energy for another long, drawn-out game. Kasparov chose a very risky strategy, and it might have worked against any other computer in the world at the time, but it didn't work at all against Deep Blue. It only takes 19 moves. A furious Kasparov juts out his hand to shake the hand of Joe Hone, the IBM scientist who is acting as Deep Blue's human proxy. The crowd is stunned. And whoa, Deep Blue Kasparov, after the move C4, has resigned. Kasparov storms out of the TV studio, throwing his hands in the air and rolling his eyes as he goes. It was, as far as I know, the fastest loss in Kasparov's professional career. At the post-game press conference, Kasparov is a mess. He tells the world that IBM cheated. He says, put it in a fair contest, and I personally guarantee you, I will tear it to pieces. We can understand. His whole life was this, okay? And one day, the machine can beat him. And that's not easy for anyone to accept. Some people will probably accept it more graciously, but there, there will be an ego bruise for sure. The Deep Blue team doesn't let Kasparov's tantrum drag them down too much. They had just accomplished a task 50 years in the making. They had built a computer that could beat the best chess player in the world. But just because Deep Blue won, did that make it a better chess player? Most experts would have said and still would believe that Kasparov was the better player. He just outplayed himself. He psyched himself out, I believe, in game two and probably game six. If he had to do it all over, just went into the match as Kasparov, I'm sure he would have won that match. Kasparov was not Kasparov during these games. So that's a lesson. Be yourself. Don't be somebody else. So ironically, the computer taught us a lesson about humanity. Stay within yourself and you'll succeed. But of course, Deep Blue also played a much more concrete role in the history of computing. The biggest legacy of Deep Blue is it's a milestone before which people thought of computers as capable of routine kinds of things, but not capable of intelligent behavior. And after that, people were more willing to consider that, in fact, computers maybe can do things that require intelligence. Deep Blue was a stepping stone to the AI-enhanced world that's starting to grow in 2023. A lot of people would say, we're in another turning point right now. And while AI may be intimidating, it's gradually becoming a part of our everyday lives. In the past six months, I've seen more change than in the past you know, 20 years with the new, you know, Chad GPT and that kind of stuff is going to change the way we interact with computers and it's going to change our jobs. For example, you probably sat down and wrote those questions out after doing a little bit of reading and research and speaking with other people. What if you just gone to Chat GPT and said, 
I'm, I'm about to interview one of the creators of Deep Blue. Give me a list of 15 questions that I should ask, and I bet it would have spit out a pretty good list. We didn't do that. But it's not a ridiculous idea. And Gary Kasparov probably feels the same way. He's no longer a sore loser. Now, he's a huge proponent of AI. Here he is delivering a TED Talk in 2017. We must face our fears if we want to get the most out of our technology. And we must conquer those fears if we want to get the best out of our humanity. Combining our strengths, human intuition plus machines calculation, human strategy, machine tactic, human experience, machines memory. Could it be the perfect game ever played? Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What do you think about AI? Does it have a place in sports? Let us know, and we might feature you in an upcoming episode. Shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guests and consultants. Bruce Pandolfini, veteran chess teacher, author, and consultant on the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Tom Standage, historian and editor of the Economist series, The World Ahead. Murray Campbell, AI research scientist at IBM and co-creator of Deep Blue. And Feng Shengshu, system architect of Deep Blue and author of Behind Deep Blue, building the computer that defeated the world chess champion. Honorable mention to provisional speed chess master, Forrest Bryant, who kindly answered every question we had for this episode. This episode was produced by ChatGPT, uh, I mean, Hazel May, and co-produced by Cooper McKim. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Isaac Lee. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023 A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.